Hello, welcome to the first ever brand new Communities of Wealth podcast. I am Shanna Pelche and I'll be facilitating these conversations. And I am sitting with two lovely ladies here ready to talk about some interesting, likely new topics or terms for folks like me who did not even know philanthropy was a word until I started working with the person sitting at the table next to me. So I'd like us to go around and maybe introduce ourselves, starting with our fearless leader, Thea. Me quetch. Um, hi. Yeah, my name is Thea Belanger. Um, my mother is Anishinaabe from Nipissing First Nation, and my father is Maliseet from Topic First Nation. And uh, I'm the project director for the Ontario Indigenous Youth Partnership Project. <laughs> <laughs> known um, as, popularly known as OIP. OIP, yeah, because it's really long, so we, we, we hyphenate it. But, um, and essentially what, what OIP does is we provide grants for Indigenous youth, um, but we're also a, a granting program that was created by and for Indigenous young people in Ontario. Um, and so... Um, which is part of the reason why we're doing this. But maybe I'll pass it over to Gabby to introduce herself. Cool. Hey, everyone. Ani, Bojo, Tanchek, Yuau. So most people know me as Gabby, but uh, professionally, it's Gabrielle Fayant. I'm originally from Alberta. My family comes from uh, one of the eight land-based Métis settlements called the uh, Fishing Lake Métis Settlement. Uh, but I'm now a guest here on Unceded and Surrendered Algonquin Territory. Um, and I'm the pro- the program coordinator for OIP. Uh, I've been with OIP for many years now. Um, and it's because I'm really passionate about this work. I'm very much someone who can't really get involved with something unless I really believe in it. So I've been with OIP for, I would say, almost eight years. So... I think that that uh, shows what kind of work we do and how dedicated we are and passionate we are about supporting Indigenous youth. Um, so I'll talk about that later on, but uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this is really exciting to sit here with these two fearless queer and talk about the work that we do at OIP and why this podcast is coming into existence. So Thea, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about, I guess, your early involvement with OIP. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'll I'll start off with just like a quick origin story. So it don't got to be too quick. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a superhero origin story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, back in 2014, I was actually working at an organization called the Circle on Philanthropy and Aboriginal Peoples in Canada, and at the time there. Obviously, the circle is, holds all kinds of different relationships. And at that point, there was a relationship with um, what was known then as Tides Canada and now is known as Make Way. Um, but they had uh, a funder that actually came forward and had a small amount of seed money. And so they just were. To, so the circle, Make Way, these are all. What these are charities? They're they're involved in philanthropy and in the in the charitable sector. So they all kind of do different types of things, but would be housed underneath the philanthropic sector hat, I guess. Okay, which is a gives money. <laughs> yeah, just some of somebody, them. Do... I came into this work as somebody who didn't even know what philanthropy was. So just yeah. for folks who are kind of like, yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
there different organizations provide different types of services. Um, and so Tides Canada or Make Way, um, they do a lot of sort of different things. And so some of them, like they have a shared platform, which OIP is on, which helps us to um, helps us with like administrative type things, especially for like small organizations like OIP, you know, we're, we're run by one two people. So it's myself and Gabby, who's also part-time. So we don't have like facilities or anything like that. So these organizations can come in and help um, support them. They also help um, donors find ways of giving. And so they, they help to sort of advise people, which is exactly how OIP kind of came to be. So they were working with a funder who was like, they literally just said, I have this money. It was about $40,000. And I want it to go to Indigenous young people in Ontario and whatever work comes out of it, it be rooted in community well-being. And that was really broad. So that's how the, the Tides Canada came to the circle. And then that's how we created, we started the steps to create OIP. So um, the circle was working with many different foundations, creating different sort of pathways and relationships and just sort of different ways of working and building better relationships with Indigenous communities. So we got together a group of young Indigenous folks who were in Ontario who had experience with trying to access granting dollars um, and said, we have this, what do we want to do with it? Is this even enough money? Do we just want to donate it? All of those really big questions of like, here's this $40,000, what do we do? And out of that meeting, um, the decision was to create an opportunity for youth to apply and use it for whatever it is that they wanted to do. And in that beginning, we didn't realize what we were doing or how it was going to be so significant in our sort of reputation and how we were working. It was just sort of an intuitive thing to do. If you want to serve Indigenous youth, involve Indigenous youth in the decision-making right from the start. And that's exactly what we did. So prior to that discussion, are there like any models that exist for like in the philanthropic sector about working with Indigenous young people or like? Well, there are, but they don't work in this way. Okay. You know, so I think that's the big difference is like, I haven't come across any granting programs that provide the opportunities that we do in the way that we do. And that was, that is entirely Indigenous led. Our steering committee is all Indigenous. Our youth advisors are all Indigenous. And so these are the people who are making the decisions for the applicants. And that's not something that typically happens. Mm-hmm. And then how did you come to have a sort of leadership role? It was a lot. It was like a process. It just kind of happened. You know, like I when we started doing this, this was not we didn't have a person who was dedicated directly to it. It was always off of everybody's desks, off the sides of everybody's desks. And so everyone believed in it and knew that this was important. And so we continued to make it happen every year. Um, And it wasn't until we actually received um, a core funding from YOF that I came into the position of like a full-time director. So it was gradual. Like I was even a contractor at one point and like I just did some side work for OIP to keep it going and especially because I had the history with it. So that's kind of how I was brought in. The history as in? Well, I had been there from the start. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so eventually I left, you know, the circle 
and you know life does whatever it does and then all of a sudden I came I came back and it was like we had finally received this 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 pot of money to get this going and move it for the next five years and so I got the opportunity to do it. And then so how does the Ontario Indigenous Youth Partnership Project as like the name as the like how does that come to be from that moment from that point of you returning? Well, I mean, that decision to call it that was made right in that day, that very first day that everyone got together and decided it was going to be a granting program. They named it. And so, you know, OIP was born. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. So you receive all this money. And then how do you go about inviting young voices into the distribution of those funds, the leadership circle of those funds, and maybe how Gabby came to be involved even in the early days? Well, I'll just say that, like, before before Gabby tells a bit of her story and involvement, um, it was like there was no particular way of sort of doing it. You know, it was really quite natural. And so I can't say that we, like, created a, a, a pathway or, like, a document or how we were going to do it. We just sort of did it. And it was all mostly through our own relations, through our own friends, family, communities, cousins through Facebook. And that's how we just got the word out. Like I told all of my cousins to share it on Facebook when we had the opportunities come up. And like, that's kind of how it started rolling. Opportunities for youth advisors or opportunities to apply for the funding? Apply for the funding, uh, like both, like all of it is very intuitive. Like there's not one way that we do things because we think this is the best way. It's like, sometimes that changes. So there, there wasn't like, I direct intention to do certain things. It was just very natural. Mm -hmm. And so I guess before we get to Gabby again, when you reflect on those early days and sort of what we're doing here today, like what, what, why is this podcast important? Well, so we want to do this for a bunch of reasons. You know, I think one of the most important ones is it provides us an opportunity to go back to our storytelling, uh, sort of ways, I guess, you know, like we get asked to share our advice and our experiences and our learnings so often. Um, But we don't, we, we often kind of see that in like a report or in different sort of mediums. And sometimes that doesn't, at least for me personally, that doesn't speak to me very well. And I'm not very good at doing it. (laughs) So we wanted to create an opportunity for us to tell some of our stories, share some of our experiences where you could hear it, um, in a different way, you know, and try to get, um, share some of those like best practices that we have and also provide an opportunity for us to have some, you know, uncomfortable conversations. But I I think the important piece for us here is that like this platform is again being created and is held um, by indigenous folks. And so if we're going to have those conversations, you know, it, it feels much better when you're surrounded with with family. Right. And those people who are coming from similar communities. And so I think that that's another important piece for us is like providing an indigenous led platform for us to have some, you know, hard hitting conversations. And so I have some really high hopes that we can, you know, start talking about those these important things that often are only talked about on in like side conversations with people, you know, you go to conferences and you see the same players sitting on the panels all the time and you're not actually learning anything new. And 
I find that whenever I go to any of these things, it's those side conversations with people that are the richest. And so the idea was to like create on our own terms, an opportunity to share those conversations so that hopefully we can start to make an impact in the, the in the philanthropic sector. Mm-hmm. Shake it up a little bit. Shake it up a little <laughs> bit, you know, and and really hear from some people who, if they were invited to a different podcast, might not actually say what they're what they really want to say out of mm-hmm. fear or anything like that. So we're trying to provide an opportunity to have, you know, a less harmful experience when sharing some of these things because, like, we're talking about funders, we're talking about money, mm-hmm. and that oftentimes is really uncomfortable. And the stakes are high. The stakes like, are, these are high. Big funds. <laughs> you know, we don't I'd like the idea is that we we want to speak our truths without fear of of repercussions, mm-hmm. um, and without fear of like speaking truth in front of funders. Yeah, and building the relationships from a different perspective. You know, so so that's that's the idea behind behind this now. You know, and the pandemic also kind of yeah. created <laughs> us an opportunity to do this. You know, we haven't been able to get together and have these conversations in person. So why don't we record them and share them with the world? Yeah. And it sounds like you have so much wisdom from navigating this world that a lot of people don't even know like what that is even like. And to have an, an indigenous youth led sort of mandate and organization sort of little pocket of resistance that exists within that world, I think is going to open the curtain on a lot of things. And I'm really excited to be a part of talking about some of these hard and being critical of the system that we're in and accepting money and what the the implications, the ethics and having these uh, important relationships with the young people. And so yeah, I think uh, I hope folks stick stick with it and give us a chance as we explore this because we're all doing this for the first time, kind of like oh yeah, and bringing these side conversations to now have recorded and put out there for the world. Uh, just uh, be patient with us as we navigate these yeah. these this this world of podcasting. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, how does Gabby get involved? You got the money. You got the name. And well, actually, we didn't give her money. <laughs> <laughs> Oip has the money. <laughs> and Gabby is like a very well-established like youth leader here. And to have her on your team, you're... <laughs> it's pretty deadly. Yeah, you got some good clout now in the Indigenous youth community. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I got involved because Thea actually DM'd me one day. <laughs> And was like, hey, there's this OIP thing and um, you guys could apply for it. I've seen some of the work you're doing and some of your colleagues. And so we applied and um, it's kind of funny thinking back on it because I continue to see really similar stories come through the applications. Like we were just reviewing the applications the other day and there was this one youth who's like, I want to change the world and we're going to do this and just give me like (laughs) $5,000. And um, that was me, you know? (laughs) I will single-handedly decolonize Canada with five grand. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, just give me something. Like, you know, I I grew up in poverty too, right? So $5,000, I was like, whoa, like you can apply for (laughs) $5,000. You know, that was like more money than I ever seen. And um, so we put our ideas into this application. And and the good thing was, is that it wasn't like an application that took us like six months to write and went through like 
three different observations and steering committees and all these things. And, you know, it was like two, two or three pages, maybe four pages at the time. And it was like a, a quick answer. Um, and so they were like, so we think that you might have like, your idea is really cool, but we don't think you can do it with $5,000. <laughs> and they're like, we think it like you have a lot of ambition and passion. And so we'd like to invite you to our uh, OIP gathering um, or at least you and your team. And so that's really how I got more involved with OIP um, because I think that's one thing that we do with OIP that's really cool is that you know, we don't just say no and then never talk to you again. You know, we might we might say no or we might, you know, maybe like adjust the budget a little bit. But what we also do is create other opportunities. Um, and those other opportunities can be like lifelong opportunities. Um, so like just a, a good example is that, you know, my work with A7G, we actually continuously get support from OIP for our round dance. And like our round dance is something we look forward to every single year. Um, we don't get a whole lot of money for it, but that little bit of money continues like year after year. And, you know, that keeps the community strong. Um, and there's also like other like networking opportunities too. And we get to meet different funders who then become aware of our work. Um, so this is like what we do for for other youth too so you were you a part of the first round of funding yeah I think you had applied in our first our very first year and then after that I don't think you applied again but that's when we invited you to become a youth advisor and you stayed in that position for several years and are now a project coordinator and so and, and that's another thing too is that like with all of our youth advisors and the folks that we um, engage with is we try to continuously find ways of keeping them engaged if they want to, you know, like let's say for example, like Gabby and Quinn who served as youth advisors for probably about three or four years, um, weren't ready to let go when they were um, sort of transition transitioning out of being a youth and saying like, okay, well, I don't really fit that, you know, that spot anymore, but I don't want to stop working with you. And so it was like, okay, well, like, how can we continuously find different ways of engagement? And so Gabby is now a part-time coordinator and Quinn is the chair of our steering committee, you know? And so like they, ca they carry all of that experience into their roles now. And so they don't have to not be involved anymore just because they're no longer a youth advisor. There's and we're always trying to find ways of continuously being engaged. And it's the same with our grantees. You know, like we oftentimes ask some of our grantees to be a youth advisor. So there are there are several of our, our grantees who are transitioning into being, you know, youth advisors and all of those kinds of things. And so that's a, that's a really key thing that we try to do um, is that it's not just like, thanks for all of your advice and work for two years and then we don't talk to you anymore. <laughs> Yeah, like it's really about relationship building. And I think that that's so taken for granted in most of like just funding in general, whether it's private or public funding. It's just, you know, like I, for example, we had a program that we were doing with this one funder uh, for like three years, you know, and then we thought that there was a relationship there. So we didn't put like every single thing into the application when we reapplied for the next level up. You know, we just were like, okay, like they know who we are. 
we don't have to like go into so much detail about every little thing. And then we actually got denied, you know, and that was a lifeline. And because there wasn't relationships being valued in that particular organization, it hurts like people on the ground so hard. Whereas OIP, like there's always a relationship there. And like OIP, like <laughs> we we barely have any money in the bigger scream, in the bigger in the bigger world of philanthrop- philanthropy. <laughs> we both, philanthropy is always going to be a double take. Yeah. <laughs> Philanthropic, philanthropy. <laughs> but like in the bigger scheme of things in the philanthropic world, like OIP has like maybe a pebble. <laughs> like Not even. I guess that's hard to under, because like even as somebody who, let's just go back a little bit talking about the youth advisor sort of structure in OIP and like is that something that A, you see in the philanthropic sector as like people who give money to young people? Do they often have these youth advisory committees? And then did you have to fight to like get that established or to, to say that this is a meaningful and important thing to have if you're giving money to youth, Indigenous youth? So that's interesting because like the way that we've worked, which I think is. So, OK, going back to the beginning, like, let's say with the seed money and this this funding, it it had very little strings attached. The initial when the that initial, funder was like. And when when that happens, it's just like it's so exciting because we get to call the shots and we created the process and the policies and, and we continuously change them, too, of how we want to work with youth and like what's happening in the moments. And so we change those all the time, how we invite people in um, and trying to take all of that into consideration. So because we didn't have all of these parameters to serve this funder, we we created it from, from our gut. And I think that's why it's so much different because we weren't told we had to do it a certain way. We did it how, how it felt good. And it was like, okay, this actually feels much better than current processes that are put into place um, and it's, which is what we see oftentimes. So like when we see other granting programs be created, they, they're not doing it in the same way that we did. And that's why we oftentimes see a lack of participation from the people are trying to serve because here's all of these people who don't understand where these folks are coming from and what their communities are like and what hurdles they have to go through even just to show up. Um, they're, it's not going to go anywhere, you know, like it, it's, it's not informed in the best way. And there's oftentimes this feeling of like, well, this is how it's always been done. So let's continue that. It's like, actually, that's, we know that, that that's some old shit. That's old. <laughs> we we're like, we can't do that anymore. We need to change things up. We live in a different world. And, you know, I, I think for us too, with OIP, like we've, we picked and chose the things that worked for us. And then got rid of the things that didn't. Yeah. And I think that that's a big thing too. And we continuously ask ourselves, are we doing this still in the best way? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that that goes a really, really long way of being able to be flexible and Reflective. understand. Yeah. You have to be willing to engage with what is importantly not working. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and acknowledging when we do, you know, do make mistakes and we we learn our lessons and then we change it. You know, and we do it very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, we set out like a five-year mission statement and we're going to stick to that. Like that shit's, no, 
like you, you nothing can change. you like predict a pandemic and exactly five year mission statement <laughs> yeah exactly so it's like we change that all the time and that's really that's really important because we're we're trying to continuously be reflective taking the temperature of the communities and seeing what's going on and trying to look into the future too of being like well what can we prepare ourselves for that we know is coming up and can try to at least acknowledge that and shift our ways if we need to, to better support the people we're trying to serve. I think um, just like jumping onto kind of like that discussion about existing funding programs is uh, a lot of these funding programs look at grassroots and kind of like have the savior complex, like, oh, grassroots, like they don't know what they're doing. They need my help. They need my money. And so they just put out these programs without talking to any indigenous youth. And then indigenous youth don't apply. And it's because indigenous youth are sticking to their morals, their values. They're looking at if a program fits for them or not. And if it doesn't fit for them, they're not going to apply to it. If it's attached to oil money, they're not going to apply for it. And so that's something that OIP is really strong about. Like there will always be these funders that come up and, you know, they're kind of sus. And we'll like go to the youth advisors and be like, hey, what do you guys think about this? Or, you know, do you think it's a good opportunity? Is it worth the risk? Whatever. And that's how we decide where we take money from. And, you know, like, like, let's just be frank is that all money is dirty money. You know, like we have to acknowledge that. But there is like specific money that we're very clear that we do not want to take. And it's the advisors that guide that. Um, yeah, and there's so many there's so many interesting people that come forward. Really? I won't list no. them, yeah. <laughs> but it's pretty interesting. The types of industry that want indigenous youth to engage with them. Um, but indigenous youth should be able to decide if they want to engage with those places or not, um, not be paid off to engage with them. Um, and that was like what I loved about being a youth advisor is that it really felt like we were listened to. You know, it wasn't like there was one of us sitting around this table of non-indigenous folks. voice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like we were all indigenous youth. Like that. there's barely any spaces like that. There's er barely any spaces like that where indigenous youth, you know, have power and have decision-making power. And so I, I love that. I think that in that way, OIP is like a really best practice. And I say that with caution though. Because what also happens is because we're really successful and because we have this really great engagement from Indigenous youth. Well-respected. Yeah, exactly. There's all of these folks that want to take. There's all of these folks that want that success. And they, they think that if they just take like this little model or mm. a template, they'll be able to do it. But that's not it. That's not it at all. Um, and we don't really have like... A template that we can share anyways because it's about relationship building mm -hmm. you can't really um you can't really dictate that because relationships are so different and like walking the talk like i'm sure doing the work as the coordinator of oip working with youth advisors you're taking actually an extra step you're putting in extra work in order to make this work feel good with these young people compared to those who just have a young person check off the box as like sitting around the table or don't have one at all which is like even worse so it's like it is putting that extra work but it's like like how you said it's what is going to make this work feel good and that's important 
And it also sounds like you actually have community voices at the table. Like, how often do you see people who get stuck in their Eiffel Tower of like funds and like where is the community voices as to like what they actually need or would look for in applying for funds? Yeah, it's like how dare you actually make a relationship with your grantee? Oh my god, what? How are you? You mean your friends on Facebook? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that's important shit because like you know, th- like for some reason it's frowned upon to get to know people and understand who they are and what understand what their needs are and to, you know, be professional. That, that like that got, got gets you where it doesn't really get you very far. And you have this wall up and all of a sudden there's that, then there's still no trust that happens between the two of you, you know? So, and that this is like another prime reason why we wanted to, to do this podcast is like we have all of these experiences and like we don't have a written out model of how we work because we change it all the time and so it's like we've thought about this too we've been asked to like make a national program and that like we just know that a well a that doesn't work that's not going to happen um but b like we don't have like a you know, like a roadmap that we've created, you know, like we, we intuitively work and you can like switch out the word intuitive with spirit. You could switch out the word for, for lots of different things, however you want to. But like, for me, that's how it works for me. Like, and that's what I, how I try to um, guide this work personally is like, I try to just do it from my heart and my gut. And I push things in the ways that make me feel good. And the things that I think are going to keep our youth safe. Um, so those are things we want to like talk about and share and, and have people hear because like, like I said before, like we have these conversations on the side and they're so rich and I just wish that like everybody else could hear this so that they can learn, you know, learn and try to be better grant makers. Well, it sounds like, you know, promoting relationship building is going to be a shock in and of itself among funders or like having a, a youth council and like, or not a youth council, a youth advisory committee, but also doing that like well with those young people. Like you are constantly like checking in how we're doing and we have a whole episode planned with youth advisors. So maybe we can like sort of start to turn, but just to recap, like a youth advisor does what in the role with OIP? Oh, well, so they guide how we work every year and they, so there's there's a lot of sort of roles that I think youth advisors hold, but one of the first things that we do in a year is we get together and we look at what's happening in the year and we talk about what happened in the, in the past and we revise things. So we have a set of values. We're very value driven. And so we have these words and we define them by how we want to work every year. And that's guided by our youth advisors. Um, what do these words make sense? Do the definitions make sense? Do we want to change anything? You know, and and that changes every single year. So it's not like, you know, we talked about like five-year mission statements and things like that. And it's like, this is exactly what we don't do. You know, we we change it every single time because like, I remember at one point, you know, we had, um, we had this whole set of values and we wanted to incorporate decolonization as a word. And I remember like, we had a few non-Indigenous folks um, in our team at that point who totally cringed and like got all like, you know, tight butt 
about it and yeah but it was funny because i was like five years ago now that word is just like a total buzzword right so it's not like it's uncommon but at that at that moment it was uh it was it was hard for us to implement we did it i mean no one was going to stop us but that was the the sort of um uh, perception of the word and now it's everywhere and so it's kind of like okay that this is the progression we're talking about you know like our language changes all the time and I think that's a wonderful and beautiful thing because we need to continuously evolve and learn and figure out like oh yeah like that was a word that we don't connect to anymore you know like we had reconciliation I think at one point and, and everybody th- that doesn't speak to anyone anymore you know so it's Thanks, like Trudeau just <laughs> So those are like, and then on top of that, our youth advisors, um, you know, guide us in how we want to speak, you know, our language, like how do we define certain things and then our application, you know, does this make sense? Are we asking the right questions? Is it too long? Um, What do we need to offer? And then they also play the role of making decisions on all the applications that come in. And that's a big job. That's a really big job because we each have to go through a review process that takes several weeks so that we're paying attention to every single application that comes in. And then we get together um, and make decisions on that. And so they also play roles if they want to in like the design of our gathering every year or participating in different panels with myself or with Gabby or, you know, lots of different things. And so, um, yeah, it's really important piece for us because they guide how I work in the year so I hear what they say and then I implement it you know I do it oh wait so you actually like meaningfully incorporate their feedback (laughs) (laughs) wow I know right the other cool thing about uh, youth advisors is that they know their communities really well Um, and so sometimes that means that there is some, you know, predators involved in certain projects. And because the youth know their community so well, they're able to identify like, hey, like we should be a little bit careful of this one because, you know, so-and-so is involved with it and uh, it could be pretty problematic. And so that actually happened a couple years ago. And uh, what happened is that we actually didn't fund the program because there was a lot of, Um, like scary things involved in it. But we still invited that young person to the gathering. And when they did come to the gathering, it was there that they kind of opened up and really broke down about their involvement with this person. Um, And then the next year, they were able to apply again and do this really awesome program that they drove and that they had complete control over. Um, But also going back to that gathering, Um, It's the youth advisors that help us with those things and also come to the gathering and our supports for the applicants and the grantees. And um, so we did this really cool kind of like breakout part where it was the the grantees that actually decided what kind of workshops they wanted to do instead of us just saying like, hey, you need to learn about budgeting. Yeah. <laughs> but you so, do, but yeah. you don't. <laughs> I mean, I think I do a pretty good budgeting workshop. Yeah, I so. was in a seminar. <laughs> I was taking notes. <laughs> I think it's pretty fun. It's more like a hands-on approach instead of like a theory approach to budgeting. But so the grantees that were there um, chose, you know, talking to funders. And then they also got to decide where they wanted to talk to funders. So a bunch of them ended up in the swimming pool with funders 
and just had like a really relaxing conversation. And because it's scary talking to funders, like funders literally have all the power. Um, and so usually you're like in a suit and tie and you have to use all your 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 white coated wording. Power dressing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and you have to like sit all proper and talk to them. But they were just in a pool and the funders were like, yeah, this is what's up. And this is what would help you out. And yeah, it was I think that gathering was really well received we got a lot of good feedback from it and that was our last gathering that we had before covid happened but and is gathering with the successful and unsuccessful grantee something common in the field no <laughs> another new thing another new thing <laughs> like oh my gosh like when we have a, an application that's not a good fit it's always important for us to to provide feedback on why um, so we take all of the the comments, the feedback from our youth advisors, and we provide that back and say, you know, this is the reason why, but here's what we can offer. So it's never a complete no. An auto-generated, like, rejection <laughs> email. Yeah, you get the so spelling impersonal. mistakes and all. Gabby's like, oh, That breaks my, my heart. The auto-generated response is no. Yeah, yeah. And, like, that's just, we're, we're the ones who are typing it. You know, like, we're typing it out. We're including everyone's comments and providing that back. And the other thing, too, we try to do is, like, um, share their applications with our current funders, with OIPS funders who provide us with, with you know, Junia. And we say like, hey, like we didn't have a fit here, but maybe you do. Or maybe you know another foundation that's doing similar work or is in the same location. And those are criteria that you need. Like, would you be able to help support them? And that's worked in the past, you know. It doesn't always work, but it's it's just at least another thing that we can offer back because we want to acknowledge too that... It takes time to apply, regardless of whether or not it's a fast application or not. You know, like our application is meant to be meant to not take time. But, you know, and encourage first time appliers who aren't like knowledgeable in the field or what if they don't have a mentor? And it's, it is just an indigenous young person sitting in front of their computer or with a pencil in hand, you know, Yo, like we've had an application come in that that was granted like was given funds that was written with a pencil and, and mailed in because we and then we just gave him a call and we we're like hey like we got your applications great thank you you know and and and, and though that's our job it's our job to be flexible as as a, a small indigenous funder which is kind of weird i kind of forget that like we're a funder it's kind of it, but but we are um it's our job to bend ourselves not the other way around you know it's our job to be flexible and to try to meet people where they are at and help them in the best way that we can like if i know how to do something that can really help this one person to be really successful in their program then you bet your ass i'm going to help them do that i'm going to provide them with that knowledge i'm going to give them as much as i possibly can to be successful i've heard funders in this space say well, I really wanted to support this project, but they didn't really know how to budget very well. So we didn't. And I just thought, how dare you? Yeah. You Well, you know, why wouldn't you help them at least suss it out, you know, figure it out, give Especially them some... if you can pinpoint the problem. Exactly. And it's like you, for some reason, you can't provide that to them or for them and help them. Like, what? 
No, that, that, so that's exactly what we try to not do. <laughs> we we don't, try not to put people through that. You know, we're there if you want to call us and we can type, I can type the application for you. We can do that. You want to submit the application in your language, do that. It'll be our job to translate it. You know, so those are things that, you know, we don't, we definitely don't see um, happening. And, and that those are things we want to share and talk about and see like, well, if this is something you're interested in doing, well, here are some of the things that you need to consider before trying to create an indigenous program or or whatever it is. Yeah. And like for myself, being an applicant and applying to many different funding pots to do the the really important work we do. You know, I know that every single time I write a grant or a proposal, I'm putting my heart into it. It's, it's not like we have like a writer somewhere that puts together our things. You know, when we write an application, it's also not just us. Like, okay, let's plan out the next year and write this proposal. That means talking to like 30 different people sometimes because it's a community project. Um, and then to, we, I think we recognize that at OIP. Like many of the advisors and you know, myself and Thea, we, we know this. And so we also really try to be gentle when we have to respond with a no. And that's why the opportunities following are so important. And then also to, I just wanted to jump back into that, that overall conversation of, you know, what can happen when Indigenous youth are given the power to do what they want to do and what they need to do for community you know, OIP is that, you know, this is what we've been able to create. And then all of the projects that we fund are that. And so some of them, you know, grow. Some of them start really small and then they grow and then they scale up and then they get into, you know, larger, larger funding pools and um, continue to grow and, and build capacity. But at the same time, we don't want to put that expectation on anyone. So sometimes it's just a one-off project. And that young person just wants to do this one thing and they do it and they're good, you know. And I think that as a as a funder is really important to consider to not prescribe things and also to like not have so many expectations and just allow youth to do what they need to do. And create their own um, definitions of what success means. You know, that's another thing is like you're sitting there trying to figure out, well, how am I going to impress this person who doesn't know me and has no connection to my communities, has no idea what it is that I'm trying to express here, make decisions like that. That person's now going to make decisions, you know, so it's like having to try to fit yourself in a box that you were never meant to fit into is incredibly, you know, it's intrusive. It's 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 hard on the young people. And then you just disengage. You know, it's like, why would I want to apply to something that wasn't meant for me and doesn't reflect me as a person? And I wonder, like, how it feels to get a yes, like to get a you put in this five thousand dollar grant and it's your first time you want to host something in your community and you get a yes. Like, what if you hadn't got a yes from a lot of organizations or from life? (laughs) A lot of yeses, you know, and to get that yes and that you're successful I can only imagine what that feels like for some of these young people. Well, it feels pretty great to send that email. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a fun email to send. But, you know, it they it can be, um, it honestly, uh, Gabby said this a long time ago, but they, yeses to these types of grants can be um, life-saving. They really can because 
we don't know what's happening there, but we know this young person knows what they need to do. And that's just something that we don't see in, in the sectors. We trust them. You know, we have a lot of trust in, in the youth that are applying. We know when they apply, they're thinking about it. They know what they need. They've, they've you know, explored what they need to do to accomplish whatever project they're applying for. And we trust that they're going to do it. And, and that's, it, it's that simple. And, and that's the other thing that we try to do too is like, the, which is why the gathering is so important. When we get together, they can actually see like, we're just a couple of humans running this. You know, it's not a big organization. It's not some big foundation. It's just, it, it's the, run by their peers. It's run by their cousins, you know, <laughs> like, and, and that makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah, like I think a yes is literally just saying like we believe in you. And sometimes that alone is just like it like makes you like really happy to feel like someone believes in you and trusts you, you know, and and thinks of you as an expert. Um and I think also like a yes can literally mean pulling someone out of poverty. You know, someone could just be that close to getting out of poverty and, you know, they add this small grant and are able to uh, pay themselves a little bit. Like that could just change someone's whole year. Um, a yes can build a whole community. A yes can sustain language. It can revitalize traditions that might be almost dying out because of colonization. You know, a yes is like bringing back midwifery, for example. A yes is like bringing back seeds. <laughs> That's food sovereignty. And a lot of it too, it sounds so small, like $5,000, like in the grand scheme of things, but it's literally a seed and it starts growing, you know? And so sometimes you don't see the impact right away. You know, and that's another critique I have of big funding programs is they they want you to get 100 people in three months. And, you know, you that's all you have to work with. And there's no uh, area to make a mistake. But for us, it's like, you know, if you make mistakes, it's OK. And sometimes it does take years for someone to come back and say, like, hey, like, I just wanted to let you know this is what this grant meant to me. And so being able to take time with the with youth also is is very important. I, well, and like. Th that's one one other thing is just what we ask back is that we ask them to just share what they want to share and that that means the whole world and I think we're going to go through another episode where we talk specifically about it but like what happened during the pandemic and what happened with reporting you know we witnessed it as OIP what um how how hard it is sometimes for um grassroots orgs to do reporting because you're being asked questions sometimes that don't apply to what you're doing and it makes it really difficult and so we recognize the difficulty around that around evaluation the problematic things around it and try to just say tell me what you want to share and do it in the way that you want to. Do you want to send me an email? Do you want to create a Instagram page? Do you want to send me a voice note? Did you make a video? Like anything. And and that's completely fine. You know, it's on their terms. Because we were trying to put the power into their hands, right? Like we're there to serve them, not the other way around. And that's how 
these programs often get treated, you know, like you have to be the absolute best or else you're not going to get any money. And it's like, yeah, there's this prescription of like how to be. And it's like, it's, we got to, we got to move away from, from those typical practices and unpack those practices too, so that we can start making an impact on the sector. So we have better people who are better informed to make decisions and help support the communities that they're trying to serve. I really like this idea of putting somebody else in the driver's seat of sort of how they're accessing those funds, because it sounds like it's typically not that way and that young people are having to become something else in order to access that money. And when you think about or talk about wanting this work to feel good, it's not going to feel good to have to be somebody or try to be something else when the work you're doing sort of doesn't reflect the money that you're trying to access. Like that must be so, so, so hard. And I guess what I was wondering is we've talked a lot today about the establishment of OIP. We've talked about how this was just a gift of money in the beginning and, and now it's been going for how many years? seven years and Gabby in the room has been transitioned from many different roles as a as an applicant to a youth advisor to now a part-time is it coordinator of the of the program like that's incredible and I think like what does that mean to have stuck around for so long and sort of when you think about the relationships you have with other funding agencies like you're not gonna be so willing to stick around that long (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like for me, it's really important to do work that, you know, aligns with my values and my integrity and my morals. And so um, like that's why I've never worked in the government, (laughs) you know, like I just wouldn't be able to do it. Um, But, you know, I think that OIP also works in a harm reductive way which is I'm something I'm really passionate about on the ground, you know, working with, with Indigenous youth one-on-one, you know, you have to approach youth from a harm reduction lens, you know, and, and I think OIP does that even within the philanthropic sector. So we're bringing those really good values and ways of doing things to everywhere we go. Um, and I think that that's, that that's something I really enjoy about OIP. Um, yeah, like I, I can't even like express it. Like I feel like we've shared all of the the good practices and I just I also want people to know like don't just take from this conversation. Like <laughs> if you wanna do these things, please reach out, get consent. We don't wanna see like five different OIPs started. <laughs> Like reach out to community, ask community consent before you extract their models and templates of doing things. Um, And that's something like I would say about anything, not just OIP, but just in general. Um, There's this really extractive business of, you know, extractive research, even within the nonprofit industrial complex. It's like extracting from grassroots. And that's so violent and it's very harmful. You know, especially for like, wait, we're so tiny, you know, like we actually, yeah, <laughs> like we would love support, not stealing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think just going back to your point about 
you know, allowing allowing us to be who we need to be um, is is really the way forward. And when we force indigenous people to assimilate or fit into our little boxes, we're actually replicating the same harms that residential schools caused. That's the, the that the sixty scoop caused. And so be very mindful about how you're doing things, what you're asking of Indigenous peoples and your intentions. Yeah, and I feel like even that reflection is a very like, that's an intense like thing to say that as a, if you're running the status, running with the status quo in this sort of like funding philanthropic world, you're like practicing assimilation or like encouraging Indigenous people to assimilate. And Thea, like when you think about something like a, that reflection is that something that you would bring up in a meeting or like or that's the point of this podcast is like to 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 make those sort of like assertions that are that are important and like that need to be considered yeah i mean like personally that's something that i am working on as like an indigenous woman leader right i'm leading this work and i'm trying to um, embody some of those values personally. So I'm getting better at calling that out in spaces where maybe five years ago I wouldn't. Um, but, but that's part of like my process. Um, but it's, it's, um, I lost what I was going to say. It's gone. It's gone. Yeah, it left me. Uh, that's something. So talking about like you were just saying, something. you reflected on like even earlier when we talked about decolonization or talking oh, about. I remember. Hard rock. Yes. Sorry. You said a decolonization. and That was it. Um, the thing I want to say, too, is is that like OIP is great. It is not a perfect program. It is not a decolonized version of philanthropy. You know, like it is not like it. it, it, it we have these elements that are great. But we're still built on um, colonial structures. Like we still have to play the game. And that's a really important thing I want to say is that like I want to acknowledge that that it is not completely perfect and it is, doesn't completely um, eliminate harm. We still we still have to participate in this game. And this is another another reason why we're doing the podcast, you know, because we want to talk about that and share like acknowledge the fact that, you know, it's not it's not this you know, perfect thing, but we're trying to make some of those small changes so that maybe in 10 years from now or 20 years from now, programs aren't going to look like they did now. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that we, maybe we, we, we could have a part in creating a much safer environment for um, people to build relationships. Cause that's again, what it's all about, you know? Um, and we didn't know that in the beginning that that's what we were doing too. So I want to say that like we didn't, when we created this, it just happened from our hearts. And over time, the response to it is how we started to realize how important this work really is, how critical access to these small grants really are, um, and how important those processes that we're putting into place are. You know, like we're, we're continuously trying to even um, create a much better environment working within OIP, you know, like we're looking at creating different types of, you know, HR policies and like those performance evaluations, you know, like how do we decode that, you know, and do it in a much, um, you know, less harmful sort of way. Cause those can be really harsh. Like how many youth did you, did you help this year? And it's like, did that, is that a really, is that a good question? Like, 
you know. I think on like going on to that micro grant conversation too is like people saw OIP and they're like, oh my God, indigenous youth all must want micro grants. And so you see so many micro granting programs now. But I want to acknowledge that a lot of the work that happens in community is so much more than what a micro grant can even cater to. So like let's like let's keep our different diversities of funding pools available to indigenous youth. Like indigenous youth deserve so much more. You know, there's micro grants that are really great that we that we do really well and are kind of like um project based and like um kind of like startups in some in some cases. But there's also, you know, TRC Call to Action 66 that actually talks about multi-year funding for Indigenous youth programming. And so let's not forget about that either. And and like five years is not long term. Just want to say that, you know, because like because that's the duration of OIPs. That's what. Like, yeah, that's one of our core our core um, pieces. But like typically you do see like a, like, like five year granting cycles and five years is not it's not long term that might have been considered like a long time not too long ago but like we're starting to realize that like no 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 when you invest you need to invest for much longer than that you know as a funder like it it we can't just solve all of these problems in five years we can't come to like this is a an ongoing process and we all need to you know, jump in and consent to it and, and give in to the process and that, and acknowledging that we might not have the best results in five years. Cause it's going to take probably longer than that. You know what I mean? Like it's, especially if you're centering relationship building and like doing the work in a good way, like you're not just like chugging and going as like a simple process. It's very slow. It's very reflective, but like important. And you see the returning applicants, you see the like happy posts and like the good engagement with OIP online and like that's all very telling as to like how people see and want to interact with OIP and I also think that it's interesting that conversations around a granting agency or a funding agency have words like safety protection like you often Thea talk about like wanting to protect these young people from like the things that you see or like have to engage with in the sector or how do I protect it's like it's a very very anti-ethic <laughs> of approaching this work. Yeah, I, 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 I do. I do feel that way. Like I feel like I want to learn about what's happening and not not put anybody through that. You know, like I've experienced a lot of really um, horrific and abusive things in this sector, and that's not that's absolutely not a lie. <laughs> and and I don't and I I learned how I don't want to work how I don't want to treat people, you know, and how I can be a better, um, you know, leader, I guess, in this space so that it's, it's, it's just, a, it's a safer spot. They have a person that they can trust. And that's something that I'm trying to, I try to embody a lot um, and, and tell the truth about what's happening in the sector too, of saying like, okay, well, this is what I experienced before, um, and so this is something that exists out there. So let's talk about it. So you're aware. And how can I prepare you to enter a new world? Because we do have lots of um, uh, lots of returning applicants and we've supported um, youth multi-year, um, but they oftentimes do grow. And we want to see that. There's been times where we've had some of our applicants have had um, more money than we did. 
<laughs> and I think that that's just the not not a seven G. And 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 I think that's like one of the best things in the world because we're seeing we're seeing them grow. But like, how can we prepare any of these young people to then, you know, equip themselves with armor? So that they're not hurt as bad when they encounter these things that we've experienced. And I think part of that is just being explicit and stating that I'm in your corner. Like, let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's not an auto-generated email. Yeah. <laughs> even in that acceptance, it's like even at our gathering, we had a navigating institutional harms and protecting yourself, like just open conversation about some of the different things youth experience when working with like large organizations or accessing funding. Yeah. And like, you know, I grew up really, really rough, you know, like I survived poverty and all kinds of, you know, different types of abuses and things like that. But what I would say is some of my most traumatic experiences is actually working within government or for government and within institutions. And so I feel like that's what we're so protective about. Like we know the realities and and so we we try our best to meet folks where they're at, but we also want to prevent that institutional violence and harm from getting to these young people as much as we can. You know, you we you know, we can't like, you know, hover over everybody and, like, <laughs> with like a shield. Yeah. <laughs> like I wish I could, but it's just not reality and Me too. You know, <laughs> I wish you could too. <laughs> Sometimes that's the that's the the thing too is like being like a kind of like an anti to young people is yeah. that they have to learn the hard way sometimes and you know they get you know they they do learn the hard way in some cases and so we're just there and we're just like ah oh, you know I'm sorry you went through that like let's do something else you yeah. know letting them know that there's there's ways to move forward and they're they're not alone in what they've experienced. So, And preparing them with questions too. I think that's a really good one of being like, when you leave here, like you're not going to experience the same thing out there and like, and acknowledging that and saying like this, it's going to be different and preparing them for that and being like, make sure you ask these questions when you start to engage with other funders or other sectors or whatever it might be, you know, like these are questions for you to ask to protect yourself. Oh, yeah. That's like a really that made me think of a gathering where there was a young person and they were asked by an organization to facilitate. It was like I think it was like two days worth of workshops and the organization was going to pay them like a 100 bucks. And we're like, whoa, like, no, 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 no. Like you deserve way more than a 100 bucks. And and we also had a really great conversation about how much beadwork is worth you know, and like kind of like setting a rate for your beadwork. And it's really cool to see on Twitter. Now more and more folks are talking about that. Like I seen one person kind of like actually cost out exactly how much their beadwork was worth if they if they were to charge like that. And it, it was like 800 bucks for this like beautiful piece of of jewelry. Um, but they're selling it for 400, you know, and that for them, they were like, I'm okay selling this for 400, but you know that there's people that will exploit that and be like, I'll give you a hundred bucks. And it's like, no, we deserve to know what we're worth and that what we do, whether it's creating something with your hands, like beadwork or a ribbon skirt, or whether it's community work that you're valued. Mm hmm. And I think it's just so telling that when you're working with these young people, 
switching the mentality towards being critical of the way the institution operates versus it's something you did. Like you did something wrong in your work with these people. And that's why you're feeling so bad. It's like, no, they're making you feel bad because this system was not built to make you feel good or supported. Yeah. 100%. And I guess just in closing, I, I've had chills like multiple times throughout this conversation. I don't know what it is, but it's just so like, or organic and critical and important. And it's uh, not an area I'm very well versed in. And I feel like I'm learning a lot. And I think you both walk a very, like a path that folks should admire, but not extract. <laughs> and like take pieces in terms of or embrace pieces of work that they can do better not co-opt but like really embrace sort of the ethics that you're bringing forward to the table in terms of how to work with young people in a good way how to not perpetuate the continued institutional violence that occurs within the funding sector and how to be more uh, accessible seems like a really big theme here too is like how inaccessible a lot of these grants are in the writing process and the reporting process and the and being able to even just find these sort of funding opportunities. And even in the relationships, like you're being inaccessible if you're not willing to build that relationship with this young person. And just ultimately like putting the young person's success at the forefront of the way your institution operates. Versus you have this funding amount you have to use in this specific time. And this is the way we've always done it. <laughs> and it seems to be working, quote unquote, depending on what they see success is our success seems to be defined in the way that we've managed to maintain relationships over the years and grow and keep people wanting to be involved with the activities of OIP. So in closing, I was just wondering if like, what are your hopes and dreams like for this podcast or what do you want people to take away or what some of your just final reflections and thoughts on like some of the, a lot of the things that we've talked about today in the establishment of OIP and why it's important. Yeah, I mean, I, I there's, I, I, I guess what uh, I want, like what you can, I guess, expect from this is like, it, it was born again, like it's was quite, quite organic, but we've had so many um, really rich conversations with different types of people in different roles throughout the sector over the years. And they're so, like I said, they're so rich. And so we want to bring that back into a space where, um, you know, people can come in, have these conversations that actually might make other people feel really uncomfortable, um, but they can do it so that those folks can then listen later and be like a fly on the wall. And so, you know, we're going to be talking about our next episode is going to be talking about what the pandemic has has been like and how that has affected our work um, and how it's affected our relationships with our funders. Um, you know, we're going to have conversations around qualified donee status and the the complicated nature of that and, and the barriers that it, it in of itself puts on Indigenous communities and accessing funds. You know, we want to talk about sector regulations. We want to dive deeper into um, typical protocols of granting and like those things that people experience. Um, and, and also, of course, bring in grantees and share and listen in depth from them about what their programs are like, what their experiences have been like, and really spotlight that. And also encourage them to be really honest in, in what their experience has been like so that maybe some of the funders that are listening um, have an opportunity to make some changes. You know, and none of this is ever to be like, 
well, you fucked up or like this, this is bad. Or like, you know, for anyone to ever feel like, oh, I'm, I'm terrible or, or anything like that. It's like, okay, it, it's not about calling, calling necessarily that out, but it's like, here's the truth about it. Now, what can you do to change it? And how can you be better? You know, how can people do, do some self-reflection in how they work? You know, that's one thing that I say quite often um, is, our work never stops. And a lot of folks who work within the sector, they get to stop working at 5 p.m. and not think about the... I just saw Gary's eyebrows like shoot to the room. <laughs> She's like, mm-hmm. Like, I wish. <laughs> we don't stop being indigenous at five. You know, like it, that doesn't happen. This Like we, we're living the work. And for a lot of those non-indigenous folks working within this sector need to embody that and bring that home with them and see how that actually, how are they participating in white supremacy? How are they upholding those systems? Um, and and once you start to understand that, then you can actually start to make some changes then because then you understand who you are as a person and what happens when you show up to the table. So that's what I I'm I envision for this. That's what I want to engage in. And, and you know, again, we've never done this. I've never... I've never made a podcast before. Um, and so I asked folks to be gentle with yeah. us as we learn, but but I'm I'm very excited to be sharing these conversations and inviting folks in and and I hope that it's something that um we can continue to do. And and I encourage that if there's anyone that's listening to that wants to be involved, that is connecting to the things that we're talking about, you know, to reach out. Um, there's opportunities for us to share stories and um maybe provide a bit of a safer space for them to speak some of those truths and, and we can share it on our, on our platforms, on our mm-hmm. terms. Yeah. And if you are feeling like, like, I think I was like implicated in what they're saying, or I think I'm like practicing these sort of like problematic ways of operating, like don't run from that feeling of discomfort, sit with it and reflect because that's, that is what makes us better as reflection. If we like mess up, it's like, Oh, that doesn't feel good. How do we change our trajectory to feel good again? And so take this as an opportunity to do so from the privacy of your car, your home, whatever, like to sit with that sort of discomfort and then reflect on how you can move forward in a way that's going to feel better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Like just on that note, like listen to indigenous peoples, youth, women, two spirit folks when they're they're sharing something and try not to take it as like a call out or like an insult or something like that. Like if indigenous folks actually tell you something it's because there's a trust there they're trying to build trust with you um so for example like you know i've been in many meetings where i would simply say you know you guys need to think about indigenous folks and youth leading this work from the beginning and all of a sudden like i was the bad guy you know just by just by sharing that i've you been poked a soft spot yeah like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What do you mean I'm wrong? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so listen and like adapt and and it's okay to make mistakes. It's the really the big part is if you make a mistake and you just keep doing what you're doing, <laughs> that's when it becomes a problem. And so, you know, I really encourage listeners to listen and and adapt um and take advice from indigenous communities and and youth. And um you know, this kind of also reminds me of when we're filling out like an application form or proposal form. And it's like, 
can you explain to us like how this is going to impact your community? And it's like this whole podcast and this whole podcast series into one little paragraph. <laughs> like, Stop making us fit into these little boxes. Um, and, you know, if there's more to the story, like, you know, build that relationship and really try to understand what folks are trying to apply for or register for. Um, and it, it also makes me think of this, um, like evaluation. So we kind of touched on that a little bit, but there's all these like evaluation ways that institutions ask us to evaluate our performance or, um, evaluation and monitoring. I think that's like the term that most folks use. And, uh, so we did this really cool gathering one year and at the end of the gathering, there was these seven eagles, that flew around us in this really beautiful circle. And, you know, for like a lot of indigenous folks, we're like, oh my God, that must be a really great gathering. <laughs> but like, how am I going to put that in my evaluation form? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's like all these little things that, that non-indigenous institutions really need to understand, especially those institutions that are upholding white supremacy and this violence towards us. Um, you know, there's there's so much to learn, but you really have to acknowledge that it's it's a learning it's a learning journey, um, and you're gonna make mistakes. And you know, white supremacy is all about perfectionism. Mm. You know, so get over that, and get <laughs> yeah. your hands dirty, and fall down a few times, and we'll all get back up, and it'll be great. <laughs> well, thank you both for the first episode that's a wrap and we hope that y'all continue to engage and to listen and there's a lot coming we have so many so many episodes we're looking to shoot and this is just sort of this is just shedding a light on a huge area this is just a piece of the pot so thank you for listening we will see you next time thanks miigwech 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 miigwech